one of the goals that we've had, if you remember, I mentioned it when we started through Matthew, one of the goals of spending time in Matthew or the Gospels in general is to see Jesus more clearly. To see Jesus more clearly. There's no more important question for you to answer than this. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? And the Gospels, the Gospels portray for us not only Jesus' work, but what he, who he is like, what, he, what he's like, his character. But the problem is, is when we come to the Gospels, we have many preconceived ideas about Jesus and what he's like. And I would say even especially in the church, we have many preconceived ideas about Jesus and what he is like. And so what we tend to do is we read the the Gospels and we see something shocking that Jesus said, like he says here today, and we tend to take our preconceived notions and read it onto that shocking statement that we hear from Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, we can only know Jesus not through our preconceived notions of who he is, but only through the scriptures. That's how we know Jesus. That's how we know who he is. Sometimes, and especially in our culture, Jesus is just portrayed as this nice guy, you know, just your, your buddy that you can get together with, and he's not too harsh, and he's, you know, he's easy to hang around with, and not too judgmental. But we need to listen carefully to who he is, how he, who God presents him to be, who the apostles present him to be, and who the Father presents him to be through inspired Scripture. And the reality is that Jesus does not often fit our preconceived notions, does he? Jesus doesn't fit in a box. You can't just say, well, Jesus is nice, and I'm going to play around with him a little bit, and then I'm going to put him back on the shelf. He doesn't fit into the the parameters that we set for him. He is who he is, because God is who he is. He's self-defined. Or, to borrow a line from C.S. Lewis that you all know, he's not a tame lion. Jesus is not tame. He is who he is, and his character and his, is on display in the Gospels, and he is shocking. And so even as we come to the Scriptures this morning, you're going to hear some very shocking things from Jesus, and you need to listen with your full ears to who Jesus is and his demands in this passage. Let's just review a little bit where we're, at, where we're at in Matthew 10. Matthew 10 is that second of five major discourses in Matthew, and Jesus is teaching his 12, uh, his 12 that he's sending out to the, the, the cities of Israel to proclaim the gospel. What's their mission? It's the same mission that John the Baptist had, that Jesus had. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. That's their mission, to proclaim that message and gather people, gather new disciples for Jesus, those who will repent, turning allegiance from sin and self, and entrusting themselves to Jesus, and submitting to him, and following him as king. And so that's their main objective. We talked about that the first week in Matthew 10, 5 through 15. That's their main parameters for their mission. But then the rest of Matthew 10 is all about the response. How are people going to respond to that message, and then how do you respond to that response as his disciples? And Matthew's recording this for his audience, his Jewish audience. Why? Because even though there's particular commands that only relate to the 12 going amongst the cities of Israel, there are timeless principles for us that we will need to extract. And we've done that. Remember, uh, when we, uh, after the, the parameters of the mission given in Matthew 10, 5 through 15, We talked about the response that they're going to hand you over. They're going to hand you over. You're going to be betrayed, even by the closest family members to you, to religious and political authorities, unto death. And then last week we talked about Jesus said, don't be afraid. I mean, it would be very natural to be afraid in that context. He said, don't be afraid. Continue to confess me, to confess me publicly, to swear allegiance publicly. And now this week, Jesus ends his teaching, his instructions to his 12, 
and he says some very shocking things. So let's go ahead and jump into the text. And here's the main idea that you're going to see in this text this morning, and it's this. Lose your life for Jesus in proclaiming repentance so that others might receive him and his rewards. That's where we're going this morning through the text. Lose your life for Jesus in proclaiming repentance so that others might receive him and his rewards. Look at verse 34. Verse 34, we're going to see the first component of this this morning, verses 34 through 39, and the main idea of that particular section is this. Lose your life for Jesus as he brings peace through judgment. Lose your life for Jesus as he brings peace through judgment. Look at verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And as you just hear what Jesus just said, this is one of those shocking statements that we like to gloss over, and we like to say, well, Jesus wouldn't say anything like that. The, the word here for, uh, uh, for, for bring, it's actually a stronger word than that. It's the idea of throw. Normally, you translate this word throw. So you could translate it like this. Don't think that I came to throw peace on the earth, to bring about a sudden change in bringing peace to the earth, peace to the land. I have not come in order to throw peace on the earth, but a sword. Jesus did not come, Jesus just said he didn't come to bring peace. Now, wait a minute. What about, what about peace on earth, goodwill to men? What, what about that? That's in Luke. Or even more recently in Matthew 10, what did he talk about earlier on? He said to his disciples in verse 12, as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. What, I, he's, already, he's already talked about peace and bringing peace to people. And this is what the disciples are expecting. They're expecting peace. And they're expecting peace for Israel. You remember the backdrop of this whole passage. We remember uh, Jesus looks out on the crowds and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And we said the backdrop to what Jesus is talking about and alluding to is Ezekiel 34. And Ezekiel 34 talks about peace. The peace that he's referencing in this passage. Turn back to Ezekiel 34 if you want to, or you can just listen. But listen to what Jesus says about peace. That, that whole chapter of Ezekiel 34 says that Israel is going into exile because its shepherds have failed them. In fact, they've abused the sheep. And so what God's going to do is God's going to come and shepherd his sheep. But what you see at the end, uh, at the end of the chapter is the promise. God's going to regather his people. He's going to regather the sheep of Israel to the land. And we pick up, just, just start in verse 23 of Ezekiel 34. Notice what he says. And listen for the language of peace. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, Yahweh, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am Yahweh, I have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield its increase and they shall be secure in their land, and they shall know that I am Yahweh when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslave them. You see the promise at the end there is God's going to regather Israel in its land under the shepherd of David, the ultimate Davidic king, who's Jesus ultimately, and he's going to bring peace and security in the land. And that's what the disciples are expecting. Yes, the Messiah is coming. He's going to bring peace. And yet Jesus here in Matthew 10 says, I didn't come to bring peace. I didn't come to throw peace upon the earth. I came to throw a sword. Sword of what? Well, as we'll see here in a minute, it's the sword of God's judgment. It's the sword of God's judgment. 
Why? Why is he saying this? That, and notice, it's his purpose. It's not just an effect of why Jesus came. It's his purpose in coming. I came in order to throw peace, uh, not to throw peace upon the earth, but a sword to bring division and hostility. Notice what he says in verse 35 as he unfolds this a little bit more. For I came to divide in two a person, a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And the enemies of a man are those of his own household. What's Jesus talking about there? He, he supports what he just said in 34. He says, for, let me explain to you why I didn't just come to bring peace, but a sword. Let me explain that a little bit more. Let me support it. Verse 35, he came to divide. Jesus came to divide the world, to divide in two, to divide in two the most intimate relationships of the household in hostility, divide in two a, a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The enemies of a person, of a man, will be those of his own household. That's what Jesus says, that he came for that. He came to bring division. He came to bring hostility. And if you're listening, then you're very confused because this doesn't seem to match what we know about Jesus and his character. And yet we need to hear what he's trying to say here. Now we get a better clue of where Jesus is going with this because maybe you see this in your Bible. There's an, uh, that Jesus is actually quoting an Old Testament scripture in verse 35 and 36. And that helps us understand what he's getting at when he states these shocking words. So turn to, uh, t- turn to Micah, turn to Micah 7. And while you do that, let me set the stage for Micah. Micah was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. And so what has happened in that, that time frame is that uh, the kingdom of Assyria came down, captured the northern kingdom of Israel, and then was threatening the southern kingdom of Judah with exile. Now, they ultimately did not succeed, and yet there's this, this threat of judgment. And God even says in, in Isaiah and in Micah, yeah, Judah, you're going to go into exile too because of your sin. And the way Micah is structured, there's actually three cycles of giving, pronouncing judgment leading into salvation. So there's cycle one, judgment, then leading into salvation. Cycle two, judgment, then leading into salvation. Well, Micah 7, it's that third cycle of judgment leading into salvation. And so let's pick up, just get a little bit of context. Uh, Jesus is quoting 7, 6, but let's, let's start in verse 1 of Micah 7 to get a little bit more of the context here. Micah 7, 1, woe is me. So this is Micah talking, for I have become... As when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, And the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. The best of them is like a briar, and the most upright of them a thorn hedge. So you see what Micah is saying. There is injustice and evil everywhere. And that was what was going on in the people at the time. And then you see a transition right in the middle of verse 4. He says, what's the consequence for this? The consequence is the day of God's judgment. Look at the second half of verse 4. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. And then he goes on to describe that confusion. Verse 5, but put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law rises against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. And you, know what, you notice what's going on there. There's our quote. There's our allusion from Jesus. But what is going on here is, is, is the consequence of judgment 
you are acting evilly as a nation, and the consequence of that judgment is division and hostility in the home, in the household. And in light of that, notice how Micah responds in verse 7, which transitions to the, uh, into the, the proclamation of salvation, which flows from verse 8 to 20. We won't read that, but this is the transition to that. Verse 7, but as for me, I will look to Yahweh. I will look to the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So in the midst of this judgment, in the midst of this confusion, this division in the household that is a symptom of God's judgment on a wicked people, what's the proper response? You can't trust your family. You trust God, the God of your salvation. And then that salvation is unpacked in verse 8 through 20. God promises Israel will be restored. There will be salvation. There will be deliverance in that sense. But notice how God operates. God brings salvation through judgment. That's always how it is. God brings salvation through judgment. Let me give an example of this, even just in another episode in redemptive history. So God's bringing Israel out from the Exodus, and he brings them out. They go through the Red Sea, and they, that the, the, he parts the Red Sea, and that's a way of salvation for Israel, but what? It's a the waters of judgment for the Egyptians. God brings salvation through judgment. What becomes salvation for one people, for those who are opposed to God, becomes their judgment. And that is exactly what Jesus is alluding to here. Jesus will bring peace, ultimately. He is the prince of peace, as Isaiah talks about him, but he will bring peace through judgment. Jesus will regather Israel. He will regather that nation, and he will bring peace upon the land. That's really the idea of, uh, I don't think I came to bring peace. Uh, It's literally upon the land, and he's thinking first and foremost about the land of Israel, and then by extension, the earth. And that's true. He will, but not right now, not in his first coming. And what's drawing the dividing line in all of this? Well, remember the context of Matthew 10. The dividing line is the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel that says Christ is king. You are under his judgment. You deserve God's wrath because you're a rebel. That's what sin is, is rebellion against him. It's a slap in the face to the God of the universe. He deserves his eternal, infinite wrath poured out upon you. And yet the king has offered you terms of surrender. He has offered you terms of surrender and said, repent, turn your allegiance from sin and self, and instead turn back to me and trust yourself to the king, to Christ, who will die in place of his people for their sin and will live the perfect, lived in flesh, human righteousness that they cannot, and you follow him with your whole life. And for some people, that message is a message of salvation. Those who will have ears to hear, those who will listen, that is a message of salvation. That is a message of joy, of comfort. But for those who reject that message, it is a message of judgment. The gospel brings division. The gospel brings judgment. Uh, This is... This happens, you see this throughout the rest of the New Testament as well. You can turn there if you like, but I just want to show it to you in John, John 3. John 3, you see the same reality. Very famous verse, John 3.16, and yet we read more of the context. John 3.16, for in this way God so loved for in this way God loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him has not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But everyone who 
but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Did you see it? The message of the gospel is a divider. It's going to divide the world into two groups of people. Those who will hear it as a message of salvation, which it is, but it will become a message of judgment for those who reject it. They're condemned already for not believing the gospel. And that is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 10. The message that the apostles are going out and proclaiming is a message of salvation to those who will hear it and a message of judgment to those who will not. It's salvation through judgment. It's peace through division. It's peace through division. Uh, Apostle Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 2, 14. We are ambassadors. We're proclaiming the gospel of the, mess- uh, the gospel of the kingdom. And to some, we're a fragrance and aroma of life to life. And to some, death to death. The gospel is a dividing line. It's a sword that divides, divides the world into two people groups. And that sword goes right down the middle of families. In context, the, the, the idea is that the family hears you proclaiming Christ, hears you proclaiming Christ is king, come, submit to him, repent, receive his peace. And the family says, no, we don't want to hear that. Shut up. We don't want to hear it anymore. And if you cave, you cave, right? There's separation. There's division and hostility in the family. So what do you do with this? What do you do with this? If Jesus is bringing peace through judgment, then how does this, what do you respond to? Well, Jesus builds his argument starting in verse 37. He goes on. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Wow. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that, okay, you feel this pressure from your family. Don't speak about Jesus to us. Don't proclaim this message. You're wrong. We're going to hand you over to the authorities to death. That's what he talked about earlier. If you cave, then really what's going on is you're showing that your love, your affection, it's really the idea of uh, love is a fine translation, but uh, it's the idea of affection. Your affection for your father and your mother or for your son and your daughter, if it's more than me, you're a traitor. You're exercising treason against the king of kings. You hold your family higher than Christ. You're not worthy of Christ. In other words, Jesus must be your highest affection. Not just allegiance. We can kind of think of allegiance as a stoic thing, but Jesus wants your affection. He wants your affection, your, your, your ultimate delight, your ultimate joy in him. That's how we were designed to be by God. We were designed to be worshipers, to see God's majesty, his loveliness, his awesomeness, his grandeur, to be overcome by it and to say, God, you are awesome. You are my highest affection and I will live for you. And yet sin does exactly the opposite of that. I am my highest affection and I will live for me. And that's the essence of sin. But Jesus rescues us from our false affections, our wrong affections for things and people and ourselves above him and says, no, if you're going to have me, you will have me as your greatest pleasure and joy and treasure. It's the issue of affection, affection. And if you will not have Jesus as your highest affection, then that means you won't have God as your highest affection. And we, call, we have a name for that. We call that idolatry. When you love something other and more than God, than Christ, that is idolatry. It is the essence of treason, which is why Jesus is saying, if it comes down to that, if it comes down to that, you, you give up and you love your father or your mother, your son and daughter more than me. You're not worthy of me. You're not worthy of me. And then he escalates it even more, if that wasn't enough. He escalates it even more because look at verse 38. And whoever does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Now that 
the disciples would have been shocked before. This time they would have shuddered. They would have shuddered. Let me describe for you what crucifixion was like in this world. The process of crucifixion generally began with being tortured. So this is before you get nailed to the cross. You generally began with torture, including flogging, till you're a bloody mess. Then the one would condemn would carry that horizontal bar that you see on the cross. They would carry that horizontal bar, just the horizontal bar. They would carry that horizontal bar through town, um, and they would take it to the outside of town where it would eventually be attached to that vertical post in the air. And as they're walking through town, uh, they might have a placard on them that describes their crime, but it's very public. You're, you're being marched through shamefully to town to, to outside of town. It would be outside of town, but it would be a very public place, a very public place. Because the point of crucifixion is to be as most shameful and tortuous as possible. The condemned would be elevated into the air, often with feet and hands nailed to the cross. The condemned would either be naked or lightly clothed. The person would die of suffocation, exposure to the elements in animals, or loss of bodily fluid over the course of usually days. This horrific form of execution was normally reserved for slaves, brigands, and enemies of the state, seditious rebels. Only very rarely was a Roman citizen crucified. This form of execution was designed to be maximally tortuous and publicly shameful as a way of discouraging the behavior for which the person was crucified. That is what taking up your cross means. Taking up your crosses means you're taking up that cross beam and you're starting your death march. And notice what Jesus says. It's whoever does not take his cross and follow after me, meaning what? It's implying that Jesus is on that same death march. Now here he just gives a hint of it. He's going to make it explicit later in the gospel. But the idea is if you're not willing to suffer the most shameful and excruciating death that there is in the eyes of the world, and you're not willing to undergo that as a disciple, you are not worthy of Christ. Because that's where he's going. And what is a disciple? A disciple is a follower and learner of Christ. And when we start on the Christian life, when we repent and entrust ourselves to Christ, and we are committing to following him and having him as our greatest affection and our highest allegiance, then that means you start a death march to the world, to live, be willing to endure the most shame from the world, the most suffering from the world, because why? What's going to make you through that? He's saying, you don't, if you're not willing to do that, you're not worthy of me. And if you think about that as a believer, you, you wonder, you wonder if it came to that, would I, would I persevere? Would I keep following Christ? Well, notice the framework that Jesus is speaking to here. What's going to get you through that? your affection for Christ, to see that he is the highest treasure in the universe, that there is no one greater than him, that he is the one who saved you, that brought you back to himself, who will give you himself for all eternity as the highest treasure. Only your affection for Jesus Christ will enable you to do this. Don't misunderstand Jesus' program. Understand that Jesus has designed the gospel of the kingdom to divide and create hostility because Jesus saves through judgment and division. Truth divides, and it's going to divide to such an extent that you will endure shame from the world. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. You will. And do you understand that when you follow Christ, you're renouncing everything and embracing suffering and shame from the world You can endure it only by seeing the loveliness of Jesus Christ and having your ultimate affections on him. Only that will enable you to do this. Is Jesus your highest affection? No ifs, ands, or buts. Does he hold a higher affection than your family? Jesus will have no rivals. And then notice the principle that's underlying all of this in verse 39, how Jesus ends this. Whoever finds his life will lose it. 
and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, what is he saying there? What would finding your life mean? Well, in this context, finding your life would mean saving it, uh, living, uh, securing it. Okay, I don't want to. I don't want to undergo shame. I don't want to undergo suffering from the world. In fact, I'd like to be fairly comfortable uh, saving my life now. Or to put it this way, to put it this way, finding your life would mean finding your best life now. Your, your security, your comfort now. Finding your best life now, you're going to lose it. And lose it how? Eternally. Because that's what Jesus says. You may, you may have something now, but in the backdrop of Matthew 10 is always the judgment seat. The judgment seat of God, where Christ will either confess or deny each individual based on whether he confessed him publicly. We read about that last week. So you find your life now, you find your security, your comfort in life now, you have your best life now, you're going to lose it eternally. But the flip side is this, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To come to Christ and to swear allegiance to him is to say, I, my life is gone. Like, it's not mine anymore. Jesus is my master. Jesus owns all of it, every single corner of it. And in that moment, you are giving up security. You are giving up comfort. You're giving up any right to those things. Why? Because giving up your life for the sake of Jesus, you're going to find it. That's the paradox of God's economy, that you lose everything now to gain true life. The most satisfying, fulfilling life in God himself, in Christ himself, for all eternity. And that's what's going to, that's what's undergirding all of what Jesus is saying. Why in the world would you embrace shame and suffering to this degree? Because, because true life is not here and now. True life is in the future, dwelling with God in all his glory and majesty for all eternity. Have you lost your life for the sake of Jesus? It's not just a hypothetical thing, although it is, right? We, we need to be willing to go to that extreme. But really, when we repent and entrust ourselves to Christ, we're saying, my life's gone. It's not mine anymore. It's Jesus Christ and his alone. Have you lost your life for the sake of Jesus? Does he own it all because of how amazing he is? Or... or are you still trying to cling to life here and now on your own terms? If you're still trying to cling to life here and now on your own terms, you will lose it eternally. But if you lose it for Christ, you will truly find life. You need to lose your life for Jesus as he brings peace through judgment. But secondly, we need to see this. You need to proclaim so that others might receive Jesus and his rewards. You need to proclaim so that others might receive Jesus and his rewards. Look at verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now, this is kind of interesting, isn't it? Because Jesus has been giving instructions to the disciples, but all of a sudden he's shifting his focus. He's still talking to the disciples, but he's shifting his focus to what? To the people who will receive their message. Now, Jesus has already talked about this earlier on in the chapter. He talked about, okay, uh, you're going to be out there preaching, and there's going to be someone who's going to respond. He's gonna, they're going to respond to the message. They're going to welcome you as the messenger, and they're going to welcome the message and they're going to bring you into their home, and they're going to support you. So this is kind of a, a really full sense of the idea of welcome. They're going to welcome you, they're going to welcome the message, and they're going to support you. They're going to support you as an emissary of the Christ. And what Jesus is highlighting here, I mean, Jesus is, I love how blunt Jesus is, right? Because he just says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be handed over. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to be willing to be crucified, and so it's, it's all very negative, right? It's like, oh man, this is a downer. And you kind of almost get the impression that, well, no matter what they say, they're going to just be rejected. But that's not why Jesus is sending them out. He's not sending them out in order to be rejected alone. 
He wants people to respond. He wants his disciples to speak in such a way so that they will respond, so that they will welcome the messenger and the message. And he follows up that chain. The one who welcomes you, you're an emissary of the Christ. All believers are emissaries of Christ. Apostles were a particular emissary of Christ, but but all believers are emissaries of Christ, citizens of the kingdom, ambassadors. The one who receives you receives me. And the one who receives me receives the one who sent me. That word there for sent, it's the, related to that word apostle. Remember what an apostle is. It's an, uh, it's an ambassador, an emissary. It's someone who has the authority to speak on behalf of another. Well, Jesus is an apostle. Why? Because he speaks as the most personal representative of the Father. The Father sent Jesus, and the G- Jesus sends his apostles and his disciples. And when one receives the messenger and the message, it travels back up that chain. They're actually receiving Jesus, and they're actually receiving the Father. And you want to labor, you want to proclaim so that someone will receive the message. And then he elaborates more. Okay, what's going to happen when someone receives you like this? He says in verse 41, the one who receives a prophet for the name prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person for the name righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. Now, what's this all about? So, Jesus, uh, and the New Testament bears this out, that there are prophets. What's a prophet? A prophet is someone who speaks authoritatively, speaks revelation on the part of God. A prophet is first and foremost a a spokesman for God. We often think of a prophet as telling the future, and that's true. That happens. Uh, We know that's true. But even more core to the reality of who a prophet is in the scriptures is it's someone who has the authority to speak on God's behalf. There's a direct line, uh, you can think about it like that way, there's a hotline between the father and the prophet, right? And the prophet is speaking just as if God was there. And it was a New Testament gift. Uh, We can see that in the rest of the New Testament. Paul talks about it. It was a gift that was there in the first century uh, as this new revelation of the gospel was being proclaimed. But the, the deal was with a prophet, it's kind of flashy, It's kind of external. He's talking about disciples here, but he's talking about a disciple with a particular gift, the gift of prophecy. And someone sees that, it's like, wow, that guy's a prophet. And he's speaking the truth. I'm going to receive the message. And what is Jesus says? Well, that person's going to receive a prophet's reward. Meaning what? The prophet's going to receive a message for doing what he's doing and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. But the person who receives, who welcomes uh, the prophet's message but also supports the prophet through room and board. We kind of saw that earlier in the chapter. They're also going to receive a prophet's reward. They're going to receive the same kind of reward. And then he does the same thing with a righteous person. What does he mean by a righteous person? Well, remember Matthew 5 through 7, that talked about kingdom righteousness. All of Jesus' disciples are to have kingdom righteousness. They're to be righteous people. And that's to display, that's to be displayed in their actions and their attitudes among the world. They have words about the gospel, but they also have actions of the gospel, and they reinforce one another. So again, this is kind of external. You can see, wow, that person's really righteous. They're, 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 they're living a very um, uh, eminently righteous life that pleases God. And I'm going to listen to their message and I'm going to support them because they bear the, I can see that they're a righteous person. They bear the name of a righteous person. And the person who does that, they're going to receive a righteous person's reward. Righteous person uh, is, seems a little less flashy than the prophet. So there's kind of a, uh, a decrease in the external here, but there's still reward. There's a righteous person's reward. But you see what's happening here. The messenger receives a reward for what they're doing, but then the person who receives the messenger gets the same reward. The idea is, uh, the fancy term for this is God's economy is not a zero-sum economy. What that means is, is there's not a finite amount of reward that God gives. 
There's not a finite amount of reward. There's this much reward and that's it. So if you get this much, there's only this so much left to me. The idea is God's rewarding me in this way. And we talked about that reward is eternal. We talked about uh, Jesus brought up that idea in the Sermon on the Mount. But then as you extend the message and that person receives the message, they're receiving that same level of reward. It's It's multiplicative. It's multiplicative. And Jesus is saying, you labor as a messenger so that people receive and so that they receive that reward. And then he escalates it. He escalates it in verse 42. Verse 42. And whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water only because he is a disciple... Truly I say to you, remember there are truly I say to you statements in this chapter. They structure the chapter. This is the last one. Truly I say to you, he's highlighting what comes next. He will by no means lose his reward. Now what's going on here? Who are the little ones? Well, it's clear from this, the little ones are disciples. In fact, that language, you're going to see it again and again in the gospel of Matthew. When Jesus talks about the little ones, he's actually talking about disciples. And in this case, he's talking about Uh, It's little in the sense of insignificance. So we had a prophet, we had a righteous person, and now we've kind of got the uh, Joe uh, Joe disciple, right? Just your average Joe disciple, most insignificant person. He's still an emissary proclaiming the message. And notice, why does the person give just a cup of cold water, a basic act of hospitality to a disciple to support his ministry? Because why? He's welcoming the message and the messenger But notice he's getting down to the core reality, the core identity of one who follows Jesus, a disciple. Everyone who's a Christian is a disciple of Jesus, a follower and learner of Christ. That's the core identity that every disciple has. That's the core reality of a prophet. That's the core reality of uh, of a righteous person. It's a disciple. That's your fundamental reality. And the person here is saying, you're a disciple of Christ. You're a follower and learner of Christ. There's nothing flashy about you, but I'm welcoming you and your message just because you're a disciple. And I'm just giving you this basic element of hospitality and refreshment of a cup of cold water. And notice how Jesus highlights the reward. The reward is described actually in the greatest terms of all three, isn't it? Truly, I say to you, neon flashing sign about what's coming next. He's highlighting it. He will by no means, he will never lose his reward, which is an understated way of saying his reward is great. Again, it's the idea that whether you're just your average Joe disciple, whether you're, you're the really, you look good, right? Externally righteous on the outside, or whether you're a prophet, your labor, you get a reward from the Father for being faithful, but that's not where you want to stay, you're proclaiming the gospel, you're sharing the gospel so that you might be welcome so that that person might receive the same reward that you are. That's the idea. Sometimes we think about sharing the gospel and we think about, well, I just need to get through this. I just need to, I know I'm supposed to do it. I know I'm supposed to obey. So let me, you know, let me run through the gospel. Let me get through my spiel. And then I've done my duty. But Jesus is saying, no, you want the person to receive. It's not merely a duty. It's a delight because what you have received and you take joy in, I have Christ as my treasure. I am saved from God's wrath. You want the other person to receive that same thing. I'm receiving a reward in the future, and I want you to to receive that same reward. So do you desire for those to whom you speak the gospel of the kingdom the same reward that you will experience? Do you desire their welcome of the message for their good? And there's a principle here, even when we think about missions, right? We send out missionaries. Why do we do that? We, uh, we're all missionaries in a sense, right? We all are on mission, and yet we support, uh, we support those who go overseas, and it's an application of this, that you're supporting tangible hospitality needs for them to do their mission, and we get to participate in their same reward. We want others to respond, to receive the same reward that we are receiving. 
So you need to lose your life for Jesus as he brings peace through judgment. You need to proclaim so that others might receive Jesus and his rewards. And finally, you need to remember that Jesus reinforces your proclamation. You need to remember that Jesus reinforces your proclamation. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. So Jesus just finished his sermon. It's over, right? His instructions. Because that's what we hear in 11.1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, now that language there, when Jesus had finished, that's language that ends each of the five discourses. So it ended the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus had finished, blank. It ends this one. It's going to end the next one, and so on and so forth. So that helps us see the, the five discourses. We're going back into the narrative. And notice what it says. When Jesus had finished instructing or giving orders or uh, his, to his 12 disciples, notice what he does. This is very interesting. He went on from there, wherever he was teaching them, for the purpose of teaching and preaching in their cities. Now let's think about what this means. Remember what Jesus said earlier in chapter 10, all right, disciples, all right, apostles, you're going out to these cities, and you're going to stay in one for a while, you're going to preach, and then you're going to move on to the next one, and then you're going to move on to the next one. So that's the cities he was referring to. These are the cities of the 12 apostles, the cities that the 12 visited. We don't get as much detail in Matthew, but Mark and Luke share about that reality of them going out in pairs to different cities and then coming back to Jesus. That's what Matthew is referring to. But notice what he's saying here. He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Implication, the implication is they've already been to these cities and Jesus is following up these same cities. You can think about it like this. The disciples are like the advance force, uh, the scouting force for Jesus. They're saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. They're paving the way for the king and then who should show up but the king himself proclaiming the very same message. But why does Matthew record this? I think he records this because it's that reality of Jesus reinforcing the message. Why is he going out? He's teaching and preaching. He's done the very same thing from, from chapter 4. It's the very same thing. He's teaching and preaching. Christian ministry is word-based ministry. We teach and we preach. Why? Because God creates through his word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light through his word. And there was heavens and the earth. Same thing, and in fact, Paul draws on this in 2 Corinthians with the reality of new spiritual life. When the word is proclaimed on behalf of God, it is God speaking through his ambassadors, and he creates new life through the word, which is why we are a word-centric people. We sing the word, we preach the word, we talk about the word, we see the word in the ordinances like we did last week, because the word creates life. And the reality is, if you think about uh, preaching the gospel, it's like, uh, well, I'm preaching the gospel, but is it, is it doing anything? Is there any result? Well, friends, the fact of the matter is, you and I cannot create life. I don't create life by speaking. God creates life by speaking. God's the one who reinforces his word. There would be no new life, even through the proclamation of the word, if the Holy Spirit wasn't causing the new birth to happen. But that's comforting then, isn't it? When we know that we're proclaiming, we're being faithful with the word, and Jesus is going to reinforce it, just like he does here. He comes behind it. He reinforces it. He's going to have it accomplish what he wants it to accomplish, whether for salvation or for judgment. Remember that Jesus stands behind your message and will reinforce it. It is Jesus who is at work through his spirit in saving his people from their sins, not ultimately you. He calls us to be means, he calls us to be instruments, he calls us to be faithful, and yet it is Jesus and him reinforcing and backing the message that makes it effective for his ends, whether for salvation or judgment. As we conclude, we started with this question, 
who is Jesus of Nazareth? Who is Jesus Christ? He doesn't fit into your box. He doesn't fit into your category. He's not just a nice guy. He's not just saying love, peace, and chicken grease. No, he is, he's scary in a way, right? We talked about the fear of God. There is a sense in which it is right to be afraid of God, and yet that fear should draw you to him. Jesus is the king. He is majestic and awesome. And he's not asking for your allegiance like some, oh, please, please, won't you, won't you believe in me? He commands it. That's what it says in Acts. He commands all people everywhere to repent because he's the king. He's not negotiating. He sets the terms, and it's a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. But it's the best proposition ever. Your, your life, if your life is anchored in the here and now, I'll have life on my terms. I'll have life as I, I define it. You're going to lose it, friend. Not just now. We see plenty of destruction on those who believe that way now but more so under the justice and perfect righteousness of God in eternity. But he says, if you repent, turn your allegiance from sin and self, entrust yourself to me, follow me, swear allegiance to me, confess me before people as king, he will be your highest treasure. He will satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. He will be your greatest affection. Will you have him as your greatest treasure and true life, or will you lose your life? And then if you will lose your life for him, then you will lose your life for Jesus in proclaiming repentance so that others too might receive him and his rewards. If you need to do that, you need to talk to someone today. Come talk to me. Come talk to Jim. Talk to a member here. Talk to someone in your aisle. This is a today proposition. We hold out week after week, here is the gospel, will you have it? But we're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed next week. It is urgent. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the king, and you are awesome and majestic and wonderful and terrifying, and you are all, all of what you are. And we love you and we praise you. We thank you for saving us from our sins. We are wretched creatures and yet you have delivered us and have satisfied our souls with yourself and we thank you for that. And we long for the future where we will dwell in your presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for all eternity, basking in your glory, delighting in you. Oh Lord, we long for that. And I pray that there would be none here who would miss that, who would lose that life. Lord, please work. Only you can work. Reinforce your message, even as it has gone out now. We ask these things and pray them in the name of Jesus. Amen.